Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. Rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. Rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. Rise and shine and give God the glory, glory, children of the Lord. Yeah, I promise not to sing to you every morning, but every once in a while, um, I feel like I need to. So there you go. Rise and shine today. God is good. Uh, His glory is uh, being revealed. He desires to demonstrate his love for you today and demonstrate his love through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, rise and shine, my friend. Let the light of the love of God um, illuminate your heart, your mind, your life today. Go be shiny. Yeah, I know you might not feel super shiny, right, at this like instant, depending on what time it is and what's going on in the world immediately around you and what's going on in your heart. You might not feel super shiny right now, but... um God is good, and he's great, and he has shown the light of his glory in the face of Jesus, and we we get to revel in that, and we get to reflect that to the world that he so loves. So rise and shine today. I'm Carmen LaBerge, listening to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Yes, there are hand motions to rise and shine. If you know those, do those as well. It's a little wonderful um little calisthenic exercise to do all the hand motions to all the verses of Rise and Shine. Yes. If you don't know that song, you can Google it and, um, yeah, and have a grand old time imagining me as Grandma Carmen singing it with all the hand motions because it's one of my faves. All right. uh, Do you have a song? Do you have like a go-to song for particular occasions? Um, If you actually want to, like you got a, a child or grandchild that's, actually just any random child that's um, throwing a temper tantrum or any other kind of nonsensical behavior. If you as an adult just spontaneously erupt into rise and shine with all the hand motions, they are so stunned that they, they go silent. I'm just letting you know. Um, I had this experience when there was a, a fire alarm that went off at a church event that I was attending and so, you know, we all evacuate out to like the front steps. Well, the fire trucks arrive and then the, and the police arrive. And it was, you know, it's, it, kids like fire trucks unless they're responding to something, you know, <laughs> that, that they're attending. And so I just decided like nobody's like adults are all talking to each other and there's kids with like, you know, wide eyes and like what is going on. And and so I just erupted into rise and shine right there on the steps. And I got to tell you, it it transformed the moment um, for those kids. Yeah, I made some friends that day. Yes, I was a fool for Christ. You can imagine it. There you go. That's probably got you giggling now. Um, God has a playlist with your name on it. That's part of what I want you to embrace this morning. Um, when when God like sees you, which is all the time, um, he erupts into song. That's what scripture affirms, that Bible, uh, that God is singing over us. God's singing over you. 
Just think about that. What's on God's playlist that has your name on it? Like every single um, one of God's playlist starts with the name of a person. And so God's got a playlist with your name on it. And he's got songs on that playlist. I would like, uh, this is a shout out to all songwriters listening right now. If you're a songwriter, this is an unrepresented genre of music. I had a hard time like finding songs that represent what God is singing over people. God adores people. God adores individuals. And um, God, God loves people. God loves you. He's thinking about you right now. He's singing a song that's a father's love over you right now. But this is an underrepresented genre of music. Um, and so if you, if you know of songs that represent, you know, how God is singing over people, singing over you, singing over me. Um, you know, it's one thing for us to be like, you know, you know, the father's love for us. It's another thing to like have it be representative from God's perspective. So how is God singing over people? Like we need some songs that are easy to sing that fit into that category. Uh, today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day affirms our singing to the Lord because of his goodness. And part of Waking Up to the Goodness of God, which is Susie Larson's new book, which we are giving away 100 copies of this month. If you've not already registered, you need to because, you know, TikTok, the the month is running, the days of the month are running short. So if you have not already registered um, uh, for this drawing, for these 100 copies of Waking Up to the Goodness of God, we're giving them away. You got to go to MyFaithRadio.com and um, and get your name, uh, get your name in there. So we are recognizing, we're focusing on the goodness of God. We're waking up to the goodness of God together this month. Um, and part of that is recognizing that God is singing over you. So as you consider the songs you sing to God, I want, I want it to bring a smile to your face that, that God is singing over you today. Rise and shine, dear one. Psalm 13, verses 5 and 6. I trust in your unfailing love. I rejoice because you have rescued me. I sing to the Lord because he is good to me. I will trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. I want to encourage you um, today with that verse of scripture. Now, yesterday marked the 51st anniversary of the Supreme Court's ruling that allowed for abortion in all 50 states um, in the U.S. So we know it is Roe v. Wade. And every year since the passage of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court, pro-life Americans have held a march for life. So 50, for 51 years, people have been showing up in Washington, D.C. Um, on the last Saturday in January, to March for Life. And Billy Hollowell is actually going to join us next. And we're going to talk about it. But there's a few things I want you to know um, on this topic before we jump into that conversation with Billy. For his part, the president of the United States yesterday on the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade's passing, um, he convened key members of his cabinet to discuss and expand abortion rights in America. So just because... Um, the Supreme Court took the historic action to reverse a very bad decision from 51 years ago um, and returned the decision-making about abortion to the states. 
That doesn't mean that the federal government hasn't been seeking to find new ways to federalize, to nationalize um, abortion access. This is the fourth time that President Biden has convened this, quote, task force on reproductive health care access um, in the last uh, year and a half. So representatives from the Department of Treasury, Labor, Health and Human Services, um, all issued new, quote unquote, guidance yesterday to clarify standards and expand supported coverage of um, the controversial FDA approved contraceptives um, that are not only available without a physician ever seeing a woman who is pregnant, but um, can be accessed through the U.S. mail. Those drugs, as of yesterday, are now available at no cost under the Affordable Care Act um, for millions of women nationwide. And that means that you and I as taxpayers, as U.S. taxpayers, we are paying for abortions because we are paying for drugs that result in the abortion of a child. Most of the abortions in America are now executed through the use of pharmaceutical drugs. And HHS has launched a new effort to, quote, educate all patients about their rights and help ensure that hospitals meet their obligations under federal law. That is a direct threat by the federal government against hospitals who would seek to restrict access to abortion in any way. And the Office of Personnel Management also offered new guidance yesterday to strengthen access to these um, abortion patients for federal workers, retirees, family members, on and on and on. That's a lot of people. The federal government is the single largest employer in the country. Two out of every 10 working Americans are employed by the federal government. So we're talking about a lot of people, especially when you add in the contractors and subcontractors. They're all required to follow federal rules and regs on these topics. So we're talking about a huge number of people. But maybe you're imagining it's not that big of a deal because, well, surely abortion has declined since the reversal of Roe v. Wade, right? Well, in some places that's true, but overall, the total number of abortions of abortions has actually risen after the reversal of Roe. And globally, globally, 73 million babies are aborted every year. A million of them here in the United States, but 73 million globally. That makes abortion the leading cause of death. Death by abortion outnumbers every other cause of death in the world combined. Every year. 73 million every year, year over year over year. That's a lot of people conceived by God. People whose names he knows, who he's singing over. Terminated under our watch. God knows each one, and he sings over each one, just like he sings over you and me. I don't think the need for a pro-life movement has ever been greater or more critical. Because the culture of death isn't just here in America. It's spread around the world. Billy Hollowell is going to join us next, and we're going to talk about this year's March for Life. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. The stories we're going to talk about today are ones that you can find at faithwire.com. Good morning, Billy. Hey, how you doing? I'm well, I am well. I am well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We're just uh, a couple of days past the March for Life. And so I'm, I'm recovered now. We did a live stream and it was it was a pretty incredible event. 
All right. Well, why don't you tell us about that? Because most of us were not there. We know that there were tens of thousands of folks who, like us, are pro-life. Um, it was also really cold and really snowy. So tell us about the March for Life this year. Yeah, so I am normally there. I ended up anchoring it from home in the warmth. But I'll tell you, our team was out there at CBN News and Faithwire, and it was incredible. It was snowing. It was cold. So that part was not incredible. But there were upwards towards 100,000 people there in the middle of – I mean, it's it's incredible. You would think on a year like this with all the weather that you'd have fewer people. That was not the case. And it's interesting because past March for Life's – you know, last year and this year were a little different because now Roe – is gone, right? So there's almost a celebration of that, but then also an advocacy still going on. And so it's a real mix. And really just, I'll tell you the most powerful part about it are the stories of women who they've gone through abortion and they regret it and they've struggled and they're there to warn other people and to share their stories. That's the part that always gets me. Yeah. Um, Those are the stories that, you know, when we platform them here, um, it's amazing the response because literally everybody, if we take the time to really think about it, every single person has an abortion story because everybody has a sister, a friend, a cousin, a mom, a daughter, a granddaughter, a niece um, who has had an abortion. Um, and if you're a man, you have an abortion story, too, because um, men participate in in this travesty. And so I think that when we talk about the March for Life and we talk about life advocacy and advocacy related to this topic, it'll be interesting to see, you know, now that Roe v. Wade is no longer on the books, um, how we move toward abortion, not just becoming illegal, but unthinkable. Like if we all pre-decided that once a baby is conceived, we are going to be the the pro-life people who, you know, help see that life flourish, um, that might really change the conversation. Well, you know, and you look at some of these statistics, I agree with everything you just said, but, you know, we're seeing 60% of women who have had abortions saying that, if not more, that if they had known there was support or they had support, they wouldn't have had the abortion. And that's, that's a really telling statistic. And I think it's a convicting one for all of us to be doing more. I'll tell you, there was another survey that came out right before the March for Life. You probably saw this. It was the Knights of Columbus and Marist, and this comes out every year. But this particular survey found that 88% of Americans believe that it's possible to protect both the woman and her unborn child in the law. So most Americans, even if they're pro-choice, which is really interesting, they favor caps on abortion at some point, and they also believe it's possible to protect both the woman and the baby. So there's a lot of very encouraging numbers here. I think the big question to your point are we going to step up to the plate? We Look, pro-life people already do a lot, but now that Roe is gone, in every state around this country, there's going to be a bigger need for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other um, you know, conversation related to this that we're all aware of, and it's right in front of us, is, um, is chemical abortion or you know, a do-it-yourself abortion at home using um, prescription drugs. And that's now the primary way that abortion takes place in America. And so Women don't even have to go to clinics, um, and it also, I think, makes it much more difficult for um, those of us who want to advocate to find ways um, to speak into the lives of people who are struggling um, to bring their, you know, to bring their baby to term, like coming to terms with bringing their baby to term maybe is a way to think about that. So if you're listening right now and you know um, a woman who has an unplanned pregnancy— or maybe 
an unwanted pregnancy, um, helping helping her understand that God has a plan that's bigger um, than she can imagine, and helping her come to terms with um, the reality of that other human being's life and the role she gets to play um, in nurturing it. Like all of those are beautiful, beautiful conversations that as pro-life individuals, we want to be prepared to have. Um, Billy, pivoting um, pivoting here a little bit, you have uh, posted at Faithwire uh, a couple of stories related to global persecution. And so um, I'm wondering as we tee up this conversation, maybe let's do a little of the stats. And then when we come back from the break, you can talk about some of those specific places that we're mm-hmm. most concerned about. Yeah, I mean, the the overarching stats on Christian persecution are pretty horrific. Open Doors found that about 5,000 Christians were killed last year for their faith. And that's a conservative number. We don't, it's it's much more than 5,000. We know of 5,000. And right now across the world, 365 million Christians face what Open Doors calls intense persecution for their views. So this isn't minor persecution, it's intense. And for context, there are about 312 million people in America. So that's more than the population of all of America when it comes to Christians facing that intense persecution. And, you know, we can get into some of the other uh, numbers, but everything from assaults to attacks on Christian homes, from driving believers out of their homes, those numbers are up sevenfold in some scenarios across the world. So it's a very, very dire situation. If you're listening right now and you think about the word persecution, um, how do you define that? Like, how do you think about what it means to be persecuted for your faith or persecuted for the name of Jesus? We know from the Beatitudes that we should live with the expectation um, of persecution. We know it from Peter. We know it from the writings of Paul. We know it from um, from James and John, like it's not, this is not a mystery. This shouldn't be a mystery that Christians face persecution. But what does that mean to you in your own life? Um, are you using the same definition that others are using around the world? That's one of the things that, um, that you'll learn about, um, as global Christian persecution, um, not only rages, but rises. And there are those who are seeking seeking to, you know, awaken the church to this reality. We'll continue our conversation with Billy Hollowell. You can find all the articles we're talking about today at faithwire.com. Maybe you've heard that Faith Radio partners with one child to offer you the opportunity to sponsor a child living in difficult circumstances in a hard place. Well, when you sponsor a child supplying for their needs, you change a life. And when you change the life of one child, you change the world. Your one child learns that God loves them more than they can imagine and that God's got special plans for their life. Your one child gets help with school and is taught skills like leadership and how to even overcome poverty. Your one child gets nutritious food and vital medical care that can be life-saving. You might not be able to change the world, but you can, in fact, change the life of one child. Meet the kids. Find your child at MyFaithRadio.com. Picking up in our conversation with Billy Hollowell, what is persecution? How do you define it? Who is facing it? What specifically is persecution when we talk about people of the Christian faith around the world? Billy, you've been looking at um, uh, reports of places in the world where persecution is the worst. And that's that's hard to say, right? Because any persecution is bad. North Korea has been the 
the the the worst of the worst on the Open Doors World Watch List for some time. Could you maybe take us into the World Watch List for 2024 and talk about the places around the world where Christians face the most significant persecution? Yeah, and it's so important what you said there because our context of persecution in the West is you know very different. I think and I mentioned some of those numbers. Um, the persecution, and, and it all matters, but we're talking intense persecution, death, being driven from your home. Um, and, and I'll tell you, the World Watch List, one of the most alarming statistics, 82% of the Christians who were killed around the world, 82% for their faith, were killed in Nigeria alone. So eight out wow. of 10 of these deaths happened in Nigeria. Nigeria has been a hotspot, all of sub-Saharan Africa. That is a place where we're seeing persecution just rage and grow. Um, Ethiopia is number 32. They, you know, they rank them worst, uh, the top 50. And so um, the, the Central African Republic is number 28. So sub-Saharan Africa, major, major problem um, there. India ranks number 11. Lots of issues unfolding in India. One example of this Christian schools and churches in India, attacks on Christian schools and churches, there were only 67 of them in the 2023 report. There were 2,228 attacks in the 2024 report. Wow. So this is what I'm talking – I mean, these jumps are absolutely uh, insane. When you look at um, Christian church, school, and hospital attacks around the world, okay, this number is just alarming – there were 2,110 in the 2023 report, and it was almost 15,000 in 2024. So that's wow. the kind of thing that we are looking at. And, of course, the, the worst nation, the number one nation in the world is North Korea, and that has been the case for a very long time. Uh, there was one year, I think two years ago, when Afghanistan took the top spot, uh, but, nor but North Korea, again, is, is back, unfortunately, in that top spot. Well, and one of the reasons for that is most Christians in Afghanistan um, are either are either dead or they are living in the kind of complete secrecy that a person must live in in North Korea. So part of this conversation that I'm always aware of, Billy, is that Christians in places like North Korea, you know, they practice their faith underground. They um, we don't have good numbers out of North Korea, in part because it literally like cannot be known. It must not be spoken of because to identify as a Christian or for any of us to identify a Christian, then then means death for that individual. And so um, I think this is a clarion call to prayer. Um, it's also a, a clarion call for advocacy. Um, international religious liberty is a big concern um, and we just we just had, you know, technically a day on the calendar, January 16th, that was, um, you know, acknowledged by the president of the United States as a as a day related to international religious liberty. But like literally nobody knew it. Like, And so I think that um, those of us who are concerned about these things have to keep putting it in front of others in order that, um, you know, concern might rise. Hulk Hogan made it onto Faith Wire. Now, this this seems unusual, right? Now, tell us about Hulk Hogan. <laughs> tell us about what happened in his life. Like, this is pretty extraordinary. And then, you know, to whom he gave the glory. Yeah, you know, I'm laughing here because you just you don't expect wrestling to pop up. Um, but yeah, Hulk Hogan became a Christian and got baptized recently. And it was a pretty incredible. He shared it on social media. It went viral. 
and he hasn't spoken a lot since then. I've tried to get him. I've tried to get him to talk, and I think he probably will at some point. I'm sure he's done a few interviews, but he's been relatively quiet. But but I think a lot of people were shocked to sort of see that baptism, that life change, that public pronunciation. And then just a couple of weeks after that, he ends up in the headlines for playing what TMZ called a real-life superhero. Uh, but it really is an incredible story. There was a 17-year-old girl whose car flipped over um, and, and a terrible accident. And Hulk Hogan and his wife and a friend happened to be right there when it happened. They ended up um, getting out of the car, springing into action. They punctured her airbag to get her out of the car quickly. They really were real-life superheroes. And um, Hulk Hogan actually ended up sharing this whole ordeal on on his Twitter feed because it, the story became a pretty big story. And he started talking about the fact that he punctured the airbags with an Indian Rocks Christian ballpoint pen that he had. Um, so it's just funny how, uh, you know, God shows up. He said, thank you, God. All is well, even now. Amen. And so just a pretty cool story of him stepping out and, and saving this uh, 17-year-old girl. For those of you wondering, Indian Rocks is a tiny little stretch of beach between Clearwater and St. Petersburg on the Gulf Coast of Florida. So he used to live in Bel Air, and now he lives in Clearwater Beach. He stole that pen, I think, from <laughs> from the little, the tiny little town of Indian Rocks. Mm-hmm. There, there you go. I That's love my, it. I mean, when I read that, I'm like, mm-hmm. I know where Indian Rocks is. It's right next to Indian Shores, which is even smaller. I don't even I mean, know that imagine it's a real town. Imagine being in a turned over car in shock no, and I, that mustache is in your face, like showing up to rescue so, you, that Hulk Hogan right? mustache, you know? Totally. 100%. Oh, well, and you're, you're thankful. You're thankful in those times when help comes from the outside. And that was one of the things I was reminded of in this story. Um, help has to come from the outside. Like our lives are flipped over and sometimes we're trapped. And I'm just so thankful that God saw fit to send Jesus from the outside of all this mess um, right into the inside of it, right? So he could come alongside us and he could um, offer us the hope of resurrection and, um, and, and life that's worth the living. So it's, uh, these, these stories are always helpful and always good. And you guys are so faithful to continue to bring them to us at Faithwire. What are you working on today? Well, I've got a story about Jesse Hutch. He's an actor. We covered him a few weeks back. I think we even talked about him on the show. Um, but speaking a little bit more about how his faith journey started as a child and how he's carried that into Hollywood and how he behaves. And uh, we've got a Holocaust survivor, an interview with a Holocaust survivor that we will also have um, today, too. So some pretty, pretty moving content. Okay, so how do you pick your stories? Like, would you be interested in talking with, and maybe you've already done this, but we... Um, we had a former atheist on the show who is now a very vibrant Christian, and he's just delightful. His name's Cy Gart. Have you already, ha- have you already talked to him ever? I've not, but I, I'm already okay. sold. <laughs> you should totally talk to him. Like, we were supposed to talk about his book, and instead we just talked about the way God brought him to himself in Jesus. And it was it's extraordinary. So, yeah, I didn't know. I don't know, like, how you guys go about picking uh, conversation partners, but we're going to send you his information because I really like him. I even baited him to come back. So there you go. I love it. My, I selfishly choose what I, I think, okay, what do I want to read or watch? Who, what would I be interested yeah. in? And that's that's my litmus test. I don't know if it's the same for you, but. Yes, 100%. <laughs> Something that catches my attention, sparks my interest, and I think other people would be interested in. I'm like, yeah, let's yep. talk to them about that. All right, yep. Billy, um, as always, we love talking with you. Thank you so much. Um, carry on. Thank you. Yeah, that's Billy Hollowell. You can find what we talked about and, and a whole lot more at faithwire.com. Uh, next up, Johan Vanderbilt is going to be back. Do you remember Breakfast on the Beach? We talked about 
um, Peter as a disciple. Um, Johan's going to join us to talk about the rest of the story. How did Simon Peter live into the Great Commission after the ascension of Christ? The book is The Life of the World. We all um, at least know the disciple named Peter. We know a lot about him. We acknowledge we're a lot like him in so many ways. And so when we had our initial conversation with Johan Vanderbeel about breakfast on the beach and the development of Simon Peter as a disciple of Jesus, um, you know, we were really um, easy to make some of those personal connections. Well, today we're going to talk about what what happens sort of after Peter is filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit um, and is able to walk out the great commission of making disciples. What does the multiplication of Simon Peter actually look like? The book is For the Life of the World, and Johan Vanderbilt is back with us today. Johan, good morning or good afternoon. Good morning. Is it afternoon doing? where you are, though? Oh, it's afternoon, and it's a cloudy, mm-hmm. windy day in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. What did What did you have for lunch? Oh, it was a pear and blue cheese and walnut mm. salad. Mm. Does that have a little dressing of it? Does it have a drizzle of some? Yeah, kind of it has like a balsamic mm-hmm. dressing. Mm. It's uh, it's from okay, the I- uh, what do you call it? The Sonoma Diet Cookbook. Oh, n- nice. Okay, see, I yeah. this is fun. I'm so glad I asked. That sounds delicious. Fantastic. It is. It is. Now my and, mouth is and watering. The whole theory is that I'm supposed to lose weight with it, but that that's well, just yes. theoretic. <clears throat> Happy New Year, my friend. That is the uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's uh let's talk about this um this second book for the life of the world, a follow on to Breakfast on the Beach, which we had the privilege of discussing earlier. Um, so kind of walk us forward. D- Peter got to spend three years with Jesus. They had this extraordinary, you know, final week. They're all of this crammed into the passion. I can't even sort of get my mind around what the disciples experienced in that final week or in that in the final few hours. Like there's so much going on there. And then there's the resurrection and Peter has this incredible reconciling experience with Jesus um, on the beach. And then, um, you know, Jesus hangs around for a while. I consider that like the bonus time. And then there is the ascension, which is hard to imagine. But they received the Great Commission just before that. And Peter hears that, you know, not only have are you a disciple, but you that's your job now. Like, that's who you now are. Can you talk with us about sort of the development of Peter as a disciple maker. Right. I Yeah. And that, that's the reason why I wrote the book, because um, in the Gospels, it's it's very clear. Jesus' method is very clear. You've got that uh, come and see where, where Peter just comes and checks out. His brother is the one who brings him to to Jesus and he checks him out and he's asking a lot of questions. And I try to play that out in the book. I try to get into the mind of Peter to show how Oh, you know how it works with our disciples today. And then at one point, of course, it's with a miraculous um, catch of fish that it really gets him. And he realizes, oh, whoa, this this man is not just a rabbi. He there's there's something about him that that I want to follow. And he starts following. And so the training begins. 
However, the the goal of the training, what Jesus was trying to do is, you know, he's saying, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can multiply what I did. So what I did with you guys, and don't forget there were the there was a larger group. There were the 12 men, but there was also this little group of women. And then there was the larger group as well. And he says, well, well what I'm doing with you, you guys are going to do even more. You know, that uh, because there, there's only one of me, but when the Holy Spirit comes on all of you, you will go out into the world. And of course, that's where we leave the Gospels with a great commission, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, um, you know, starting with Jerusalem in Acts chapter one and going to Samaria, well, all of Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. Um but uh, what I wanted to do was that's the fourth step of disciple making. You see, very often what happens in the church is we we're very good at, well, sometimes at winning people to Jesus and then teaching them the scriptures and showing them how to live the Christian life. But then we need to move these guys on that they duplicate what we did. That's that's the, the second Timothy two verse two principle where Paul says to Timothy, what I did to you, you now do to other people who can do the same to others. That's the the whole that, that's actually four generations. It's it's Paul, Timothy and then two more generations. So that's the whole idea of multiplication with discipleship. And that's what I trace in For the Life of the World, looking at the life of Peter um, as he then emerges as one of the pillars of the church. Okay, Johan, four steps of disciple disciple making. Win them to Jesus, which, you know, that's the, the starting point is really important. Teach them right. um, not only the content, but the pattern of life. Um, right. What was number three? Before we move them to multiplication, I missed number three. <laughs> yeah, that's the what, what I call the ripening and reaping. So that's where now they've been taught everything. So now you begin to assess them. And we all need assessment. We all need to realize, to know what are our spiritual gifts? What are what 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 is it that we do well? And then God uses whatever that gift is uh, for us it, it to to you know do the disciple training the way that we do it the way that we that that that's quite natural to us. So that's the assessment, and then we begin to look at well, let's say this guy is good at cooking, you know. Uh, and then that can be his way of reaching out to people through a, a very natural gift of cooking or whether it's prayer, whether it's uh, writing books or whether it's speaking to people. It doesn't all have to be. It's not a cookie cutter. Every one of us have different. gifts. So that's where the assessment, the training and then the mobilization comes about. That's where we start saying, all right, I've walked this path with you. Now you choose a disciple, and you do with that person what I've done with you. That's the third phase, which so then good. leads to the multiplication. So it, it, it doesn't stop there. Then you train that person to train others. And then when they are training others, you you onto somebody else. That's the multiplication. That's the fourth step. That's the reproduction and replacement. It's so good. It's so good. Um, again, we're talking with Johan Vanderbilt. We're we're supposed to be talking about for the life of the world, the multiplication of Simon Peter. But you know us. We talk about a range of things when we're talking. Um, you can connect with Johan online at missions, plural, 
blogging, but blogging only has one G. So missionsblogging.blogspot.com. I will connect you with him if you want to just text me, 877-933-2484. The book is uh, For the Life of the World. It's a follow-on to Breakfast on the Beach. So Breakfast on the Beach is the development of Simon Peter. And then For the Life of the World is the multiplication of Simon Peter um, as he moves out as a missionary, minister, gospel declarer, discipler of others. So um, maybe take us uh, into this particular book. You, you're gonna, you're, you've pieced this together. Talk about that process. Um, what's pieced together in this? And then remind us um, why, why the way you tell us the story helps us tell the story to others. Yeah, well, writing this book was a little bit more difficult than Breakfast on the Beach. I, you know, chronologically, the Gospels are laid out a lot clearer than the life of Peter, because Peter just disappears in the middle of Acts. Um, and then we, we're not told what he does. So piecing his story together was was a little tricky. Um, I had to do a lot of uh, extra biblical reading. I had to read Eusebius and some of the Syrian Orthodox traditions and the Roman Catholic traditions and that sort of thing to try and figure out uh, where Peter went. But in the beginning, in Acts, we see Peter uh, in Jerusalem. So uh, he's he's obviously taken up the, the words of Jesus, uh, feed my sheep. He's taken them literally. He's doing that. Um, and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. Now, you, you can imagine, you know, I, I mean, we know now what uh, the experience of the Holy Spirit, but they didn't have a clue what what you know Jesus <laughs> promised this power is going to come on us. So what what is it? How's it going to feel? We don't know. Um, and yeah, maybe they connected it to the the Shekinah glory coming on the tabernacle on the temple. We, we we don't know. We're not told. But obviously, when the Holy Spirit falls and He falls with flames of fire on each one of them, the message is clear. They are the new temple. They're the new tabernacle. And they're the ones that are now the, the God has taken up residence within them. And they burst out of that with this new fold, this, this newfound power. And Peter becomes this amazing spokesman. Um, you know, uh, and, and in the book, I, I sort of explore how, how did he know Joel, the prophecy of Joel, all that well that he could just quote it there on the southern steps of the temple. Um by the way, just standing there on those those steps, uh, and I, we're not we're not sure exactly where he spoke, but uh, that's where they think he addressed the crowds of people. That 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 to me was just so amazing. Actually, touching these stones and seeing uh, where these people walked uh, was was quite an amazing experience for me. But from from that point on, now they stay, stuck around in Jerusalem for a while. Of course, you know about the persecution. Paul comes along, or Saul, as he was known. And does what he does, but then they start scattering, and they they're in Samaria. Peter has that experience with Cornelius, which gets him into a little bit of hot water at one stage because, well, you you, you had a non-kosher food with this dude, you know, you you went into his house and you ate with him. That's that's terrible, and Peter has to defend it and so on. And uh, and we see Peter's mind expanding and expanding because he's he's living with Simon the Tanner, an, an unclean profession. A lot of amazing things are happening in his life, but his mind is expanding slowly and slowly. Now, Syrian Orthodox, the Syrian Orthodox Church says that Peter established the church in Antioch. 
That doesn't mean he founded it. Obviously, it was founded mm-hmm. by other Cyprus and so on. But he, as the uh, as, as the apostle, the apostolic representative out of Jerusalem, uh, was said to have founded it. And then we see him addressing people in Cappadocia and Pontus and Bithynia and, and Galatia. Uh, and all those people were present uh, at Pentecost. So as I'm trying to piece this all together, I'm thinking... Well, if he traveled that way, and these people, believe me, they traveled on those Roman roads, they traveled everywhere. So I was taking a lot of Paul's life and seeing, well, if Paul could travel like this, then why not the rest of the disciples? We know all the, you know, we Thomas was supposed to go to India and all these things. So these men were not stationary. They did go out. They took Jesus' word literally, and they actually went out and they did that. So I followed him through to these places that he addresses in his first and second uh, epistles, you know, Cappadocia and so on, uh, northern Turkey, all the way through to Rome and back again. So using some of what I, I found in Eusebius's history and the, the Orthodox uh, traditions and the Roman Catholic traditions, I pieced together a lot of his life. Of course, Paul speaks about Peter as well. Paul speaks of Peter in Antioch at one stage. He also speaks about him in in Corinth. So, you know, there was a following of Peter in Corinth. So Peter must have been there. Uh, Also interesting, he mentions him uh, in tandem with Jude. Jude Mm -hmm. was the brother of Jesus. And Jude was also the one who wrote the epistle that's very, very similar to Second Peter. So piecing all these things together, that's what came I came up with um, for the life of the world. And what I yeah, what I'm trying to show with. We have to take a we have to take a very brief break. <laughs> so yeah. we're yeah, we're gonna be right back um with Johan Vanderbilt. We are talking about Peter and we're talking about not just who Peter was as an individual disciple of Jesus, but who Peter um is as a person through whom discipleship is multiplied in the world. The book is For the Life of the World, the Multiplication of Simon Peter. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. What are some of the things that you find hard to believe? Do you find it hard to believe that God hears you? Do you find it hard to believe that God loves you? Do you find it hard to believe that right now God knows how many hairs there are on your head and how many are on your hairbrush? Like, do you sometimes find it hard to believe that God cares about you and the stuff going on in your life right now? My friend Susie Larson wants you to be reminded every single day, every single day, that God is good. Would you like to wake up to the goodness of God? Just text the word good to 877-933-2484. Every single day, you'll get encouraging text messages, prayers, and devotions from Susie Larson right on your phone. Just text the word good to 877-933-2484. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. The preamble of For the Life of the World takes us into the hellhole um, experience that Peter was in um, when he was imprisoned um, and the questions that he would have had. uh, And then... Um, we emerge from that where Peter is really embracing that the promise of Jesus and the promise of of the kingdom is not just for him, um, but to be through him a promise for the world. So For the Life of the World is the book. The Multiplication of Simon Peter is the subject matter. Johan Vanderbilt is the author, and he is 
with us today. Um, Johan, when you, when you think about Peter and when you think about, um, winning the race, so maybe take us all the way, uh, to the end. Um, where, where does this land, not only for Peter, but for us? You know, one of the things that uh, as I was writing about that last bit of Peter's life, I really was thinking we've we've worked in uh, quite a few areas where Christians are persecuted, uh, where they do. I mean, that that what you read about Peter in prison for them is a reality for us. Of course, it's it's, you know, praise God that we have the freedom to worship him uh, as we do. But uh, so what I was trying to show was something that we have experienced in the lives of those who have been incarcerated for their faith and uh, sadly have lost their lives sometimes that they they never stop preaching you know even though they in prison we see that with with Paul and Silas as well but even though they're in prison and they've been beaten and they can they can hardly speak they are still preaching the gospel because that was so important to them so i have peter doing the same in prison um, speaking to all those. And I, I've never been in that prison. You can actually visit that prison um, in Rome. I've never been to Rome, but I, I watched a, a YouTube video about that. And I, <laughs> I had such a, an attack of claustrophobia after watching that. It was awful. But that's where he was. And I have him, even uh, as he knows he's going to be put to death, He's no, he knows he's not there for long. And, and that's just the urgency of it all. Telling the story to his fellow prisoners. And then right even up to the end, I have the man who crucifies him um, because when they, they raid Peter's home, all the writings uh, were burned. But I have this guy saying, you know, I've, I've actually kept some of your scrolls and I've read them and we believe because that really happened um, during the, the persecution of, of Nero. A lot of people just got so sick and tired of Nero's bloodlust and his vile atrocities that they began to pity the Christians. And then they would watch them and say, well, what kind of a faith faces death like that? Being mm-hmm. uh, gored to death by a, a bull or being ripped to pieces by lions. And, and these people would stand there and sing hymns and praise Jesus. What kind of a faith is that? And that's what brought so many of those unbelievers to faith in Jesus, was just the way that they, they met their death. And I, I try to bring that out in, in Peter's life as well. It's so good. One of the things I appreciate uh, that you communicate, it's not just the content. Um, it's not just, you know, the, okay, we're, we're going to memorize these passages of Scripture. We're going to pray these prayers. We're going to sing these songs. We're going to do these things. We're going to check off these boxes that, you know, have marked, quote unquote, what a Christian life looks like. It is a pattern of life. It's a manner of life. It's a way of living. It's not just Jesus as the way or the doorway to um, a restored relationship with God for me as a disciple. It is a way of life. It becomes a yes. way of life. And, um, and that, that, comes, that comes through. Johan, we have to leave it right there today. Thank you so much again for joining us. What a delight. Um, blessings upon you. And may, may, we, um, may we at some point in the future get to break bread and share that salad together because it sounds sound delicious. I'd love to. I don't know when we're coming that. to the U.S. I know we, we need to come for some Mission AM uh, meeting, but not sure. But okay. yeah, that would be great. Or you come visit well, us. Yes, or we meet up in Rome or Jerusalem. All of this sounds yeah. like a delightful plan. That is uh, that is Johan Vanderbilt. He is the author of Breakfast on the Beach and today's offering 
for the life of the world, the multiplication of Simon Peter. He's also working on a series about the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. So prayers, um, prayers going up for that as well. Okay, so um, here's my question for you right now. Are you living for yourself? Do you think that you're saved for yourself? Or do you think that God saved you for the life of the world? If you are a person upon whom the light has shined, like you, you know, you know what the glory of the face of Christ looks like. Are you now radiating that into the lives of others? It's one thing to know that Jesus is the light of the world. It's another thing to follow his command to now go be shiny, that others would um, see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. Is your discipleship, your life as a disciple, just about you or is it about others? coming to know Jesus and then following him as the way of life. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.